The following program is being brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues, Ocean River Shields of Achilles, with your host, Dr. Rob Moyer. Find out what others are doing and what you can do to create a greener and blue planet Earth. Now, here's Dr. Rob Moyer. Welcome. Today, we're talking about biomass power, and we're finding out it's not so good on carbon emissions and some of the bad news for forests and local communities. My guest today is Mary Booth. Mary, it's good of you to take a moment with us on Ocean River Shields of Achilles. Thanks, Rob. It's great to be here. Let me tell our audience a bit about you. Um, Mary Booth has a Ph.D. and is an ecologist living in western Massachusetts. Mary has researched water quality modeling, Arctic soil ecology, and other areas in ecology. In 2009, Mary founded the Massachusetts Environmental Energy Alliance, specifically to provide science support to the citizen activists fighting large-scale biomass power plants in Western Mass. Mary recently teamed up with the Environmental Working Group to produce reports about forest-cutting, wood fuel harvesting, and the atmospheric carbon implications of the dramatic increase in biomass power that is occurring nationally. And we're going to hear about that. Uh, Mary was good to post her uh, the web addresses to those two organizations, Mass Environmental Energy Alliance and uh, Environmental Working Group, in her bio. So if you don't hear Mary say it or write it down fast enough, you can uh, look it up there. Um, Mary, you were surprised when in 2007... Massachusetts announced plans to build a lot of power, at least 165 megawatts of large-scale woody biomass electricity generation uh, capacity in Massachusetts. And in addition to the existing 17-megawatt biomass generator in Westminster, there were three new plants in the permitting process, combining a representation of 135 megawatts the, the plants were to be in Springfield, Russell, Mass., and Greenfield, Mass. This, are, this is in western Massachusetts. Uh, wh- why was there this sudden headlong rush into biomass, big-time burning? Well, um, Massachusetts, like, like many states, has a renewables portfolio standard, um, which mandates the state to increase the amount of electricity that's produced from renewable sources um, each year. In, a, in an effort to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And because biomass power has been defined as having net zero greenhouse gas emissions on the assumption that if you 
um, burn wood for power, it emits CO2, but then that wood grows back, and so it ties up that CO2 again into biological material. So there's no net increase, supposedly. So that's how right. biomass carbon accounting has been done, and that's why biomass is considered just as clean, green, and renewable as wind and solar. And um, it was, you know, incentivized by Massachusetts, as it is all over the country. Um, since... Since then, of course, as we've started to look in more detail at what's proposed, um, almost all of the claims that are made about biomass power being clean, green, and renewable have turned out to not be true. Well, we're going to let you go into the details about that step by step. Um, I wanted to start with uh, uh, Russell Biomass. Uh, and if people are interested, uh, Episode 5 of Ocean River Shields of Achilles is all about saving the salmon in the Westfield River in Massachusetts Berkshires. And there, uh, Jane Ciccioni of Concerned Citizens of Russell explained to us the situation. And I and other Ocean River Institute members got involved in the campaign for the government to base the decision on ecosystem-based management science. When the state, they didn't listen to our river scientists, who found that during low water periods in August and September, uh, that to take more water out of the river to cool the biomass generator would be the end of the resident salmon population. And the state permitted the facility, and the operator said to us, oh, don't worry, when the river's running low, we'll just stop generating electricity. And uh, I don't think so. They're going to do that in August. Uh, so what ORI wanted was for the government to make the biomass generator to install air-cooled equipment for the generators, which cost more to operate than did just taking the water from the river. But with air-cooled capacity, when the water did reach an agreed-on low level of flow, the company could simply switch over to air-cooled for the weeks until adequate flow returned to the Westfield River. And uh, that's, uh, well, Mary's going to tell us why that's no longer a big issue. Uh, we didn't resolve that, but if you want to learn more about that and about the work of the people in Russell, Mass., or to take action, please visit our website, oceanriver.org, and click on Actions, and you can scroll down to Save the Westfield River, and you'll see a canoeist paddling like heck. Okay. <laughs> so, so Ocean River Institute, we took a narrow look at the Russell Biomass Facility. We took a salmon's eye view. And Mary, you and, and, and Jana and others really opened our eyes to the other problems with biomass generators in Massachusetts. Uh, what are the big three issues for you with these woody tree-burning biomass generators anywhere in the nation? Well, actually, now that you've, now that you've mentioned the water impacts, actually, I, I have to say I think there's four big issues. Um, I know, but I'm saying you're saying yeah, it's the three um, big carbon, issues. Yeah. Carbon emissions, of course, um, from burning wood are dramatic, and um, so that's one big issue, the consumption of this assumption of carbon neutrality, which is, is really not justified. Um, another is the criteria air pollutants that are emitted. That's uh, particulate matter and ozone precursors like um, volatile organic compounds and nitrogen oxides that are emitted by these plants um, at the same well, level. Air quality as is one issue. Basically, yeah, air quality. Yeah. And then and the, the last third one issue... Is the big issue is the forest cutting impacts, just the dramatic forest cutting impacts. But yeah, the amount of water that is required by these are relatively small plants by coal plant standards. Um, a 50 megawatt plant like Russell um, is really a 
you know, quite small, but nonetheless, it would evaporate close to a million gallons a day of river water just to cool the plant. Yeah, the locals were really worried about, you know, because they're down in a, in, a, in a deep valley that's all that's left of the old Iapetus Sea and when the continents came together. And, you know, they're worried about the, the, the moisture just hanging down there in the valley and freezing onto the trees and all this, um, you know, stuff that's put into the atmosphere. But let's talk about forest cutting. Now, until I met you, I thought about, you know, this would be really cool having little biomass generators serving like college communities, you know, something smaller than big universities. And it would really help with the western Massachusetts forest because in western Massachusetts, much of the forest lands are in private hands. And that's because following World War II, lots of small lots were bought up by people as little investments. And now those properties are being passed on to the next generation who find that, well, they can't afford the taxes on this, and it's just a woodlot, so they sell it, you know, for development. And, you know, I was thinking, gee, maybe biomass generators could encourage landowners to manage their woodlots by removing all the cuttings and perhaps even thinning for the owners. But I sort of underestimated the appetite that a big biomass generator would have for wood, <laughs> and a wood-gathering truck stopping at woodlots like a milk truck would probably feed the biomass generator, what, for only a few minutes of the day or something? That's correct. I mean, the, the appetite is enormous. And, and as far as this being a source of revenue for private landowners, that's vastly overblown um, because these plants really only offer about a dollar a ton um, to a landowner for the wood that, that they burn. Um, they, yeah. The prices have to be that low for them to be able to make money, and they do make money. Um, yeah, you know, this idea that um, of small-scale, uh, localized, renewable energy is a very appealing idea. And, you know, indeed, there are many reasons why um, a community or a campus uh, might want to switch to burning wood instead of oil um, for, you know, for thermal heat or even combined heat and power. Um, but but all we've been scale. saying is, you know, the people working on this is, Let's not call this carbon neutral if it's really not, because once that assumption of carbon neutrality is made, it's accompanied by a whole suite of financial incentives, which then sort of spur the industry on to greater and greater excess, and we're definitely seeing that now. So the carbon accounting needs to be done on all these proposals, and if a community or a campus wants to switch to wood burning instead of oil burning. As I said, there's many reasons they might want to do that, but they need to be honest about what the carbon emissions really are. Well, my concern was more the forest cutting. You found some, and you really opened my eyes and some other people about that the forest cutting cannot be this light little taking the, um, what do you call the, the parts that aren't the, the main tree? Well, yeah, the forest industry calls this logging residues. Um, logging so residue, the, the and, and there's no way there. that a, a financially feasible power plant is going to be simply logging residue and being a good neighbor with the local landowners and stuff, because how much wood are they going to need for this Russell and Greenfield if they're up and running and stuff? Well, well, Russell alone, um, a good rule of thumb is about 13,000 green tons of wood um, that's, you know, as taken off the land per megawatt of electricity produced. Russell's... Uh, Gross generating capacity is about 55 to 57 megawatts. The amount of power they'll deliver to the grid is 50 megawatts. Um, at 50 Mary, megawatts, we're going to be right back after this break. I 
is the Green Talk Network, helping to provide a sustainable future for us all. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. For decades, we've been made aware of environmental issues such as climate change, overpopulation, and habitat destruction. How can we stay engaged and active in helping to prevent these issues from becoming insurmountable problems for our children and beyond? Tune in to The Earth Guardian. Each week, Sherilyn Viteze will cover the issues and discuss what is being done and how you can make a difference without too much effort to improve the quality of life for everyone on Earth. Tune in Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. Two views, different topics, questions, answers, news, and advice. You'll want to check out Ecoman and the Skeptic live from Philadelphia University. Every week, join hosts Rob Fleming and Chris Pastor as they tackle a different topic on sustainability. You'll hear all sides of the issue supported by guests who provide valuable insights. Get ready to be engaged, educated, and entertained when you tune into Ecoman and the Skeptic. Broadcast live every Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk. Network. Keep listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with Mary Booth, an ecologist. Um, a Ph.D. ecologist, and Mary is talking with us about biomass power, and she'll tell us why it's not so good on the carbon emissions and some of the bad news for forests and local communities. Mary, what can people do? Where can they go if they want to learn more about your work? Um, well, the uh, MassEnvironmentalEnergy.org website is the group that I founded, Massachusetts Environmental Energy Alliance, and then um, the Environmental Working Group has, that's uh, www.ewg.org, um, has a report that I just pre- pre- 
produced on the national implications for forest cutting and carbon emissions of biomass power. Thank you. We were talking about the uh, effects on th- that you were seeing that's going to happen to the Massachusetts forest if we bring on uh, a Greenfield and Russell um, biomass generator. Yes, yeah, so the combined wood demand from those two plants, um, which would deliver to the grid 50 and 47 megawatts respectively, but which have higher gross power demands and wood demands, um, would be around 1.3 to 1.4 million green tons of wood um, per year, um, which at an average cutting rate for Massachusetts of about 20 tons removed per acre um, is about 70,000 acres per year that would need to be logged just to produce fuel for these two plants. And just for comparison, we only log um, right now in Massachusetts about 30,000 acres per year. And, you know, depending on the cutting intensity that you would take biomass fuel, the numbers work out in different ways. But the bottom line is it would require a dramatic, dramatic increase in forest harvesting just to chuck trees into into plants, basically, for for fuel. And then you were saying that the efficiency of the of the burning wood is is like twenty four percent. So that that's right. You have, um, to yeah, have like one log of you, know, you have to have four logs um, to get one log of energy or something. Yeah, compared compared even to the aging U.S. coal fleet, which has an average efficiency of thirty three percent, these plants are true dinosaurs. They're twenty four percent efficient at most, um, and and usually actually operating less than that. So. It really is as if, you know, for anyone who burns wood and buys cordwood um, to heat their house, they'll understand this analogy. It's like buying four cords of wood and burning four cords of wood but only getting the heat out of one of them. But <laughs> all four cords produce carbon emissions, of course. So that's yeah, one and they leave a huge footprint, footprint on the cut so forest, high. too. Sorry? They leave a huge footprint on the landscape of clearing out that much wood. Yeah, oh, absolutely. The cutting, the cutting demands would be huge. And, and the calculation that I made at the national level for the ramp-up in biomass power that's projected to occur um, under energy legislation um, is between 18 and 30 million acres, the equivalent of clear-cutting 18 to 30 million acres by 2025. Yikes. Yeah, Oh, my huge. gosh. So let's, let's talk about um, uh, construct. Uh, in, it's called Palmer, but it's in Springfield. Uh, there's talk about a um, construction debris burning biomass generator, and it's just going to be down Route 20 from a Friendly's ice cream shop. And now, how does this become an environmental justice issue? Well, Springfield, Massachusetts, is an environmental justice community, which means that um, it has a you know higher than average proportion of. Um, you know, minorities, people who are under a certain income level, um, non-English speakers, people who are typically um, may be disadvantaged in terms of health already. Um, and, you know, it's funny how these, these large uh, industrial and energy-producing facilities always seem to get cited in these communities that, that you know, fight back the least. But um, Springfield has uh, an asthma rate that's double the state average. and. Mm. Children with blood lead levels above the level of concern, um, that average is also double uh, the state average. So um, this is clearly not a, a you know community that you want to be emitting a lot of particulate pollution and um, burning wood that can have lead in it or arsenic or chromium, um, 
which is what the fuel for you know construction demolition debris contains. Yeah, we hear about all the problems of homes having lead in the paint and you know having to get the mercury out of your homes and stuff. That's got to be the kind of stuff we're talking about for burning in this plant. Yeah, the construction and demolition debris fuel stream is actually sorted. There are sorting facilities where they pull out um, the stuff that looks contaminated to them visual, using visual right. sorting. So, but they don't pull out any painted wood, so the lead paint can go straight through into the fuel stream. And, you know, they just use visual sorting to pull out pressure-treated lumber, which has this cocktail of... Um, Copper, copper chromium arsenate, CCA-treated wood, which everyone knows you're not supposed to burn that stuff because the emissions are so deadly. And, um, you know, they rely on visual sorting to pull this stuff out of the fuel stream, but, you know, when it's weathered or old, it's hard to tell whether it's pressure-treated or not. And, of course, there's enormous incentive to maximize the fuel stream because this is a revenue-generating fuel stream. So there's right, not a lot of incentive It's better than be a really landfill, careful. except a landfill would sequester those heavy metals. Right. Well, we, we're not allowed to landfill that kind of wood in this state, so, um, you know, disposing of it is definitely a problem. Um, we actually currently ship a lot of it to Ohio, believe it or not, and we also ship it to Maine, where it does get burned in these plants, and emissions data from those plants confirms how high these metal emissions can be. Oh, my gosh. If the listeners who would like to learn more about uh, what's happening in Springfield, Massachusetts, you can go to our OceanRiver.org website, and if you click on Events, you can scroll down to Public Comments for Construction Debris Burning, Clean Energy Biomass, 380-megawatt generator, which is the story of the Palmer plant in Springfield. And you click on it, you'll see a picture of the local friendlies. I put that up because it looked better than the hole in the ground where they want to put this facility. Uh, so... We have these biomass generators, and we're, we're told that, you know, this is going to be, these are, bio, these are carbon neutral. And yet, you know, anyone who's tended a, a wood stove doesn't think it's too carbon neutral. <laughs> so what's happening, Mary? Well, that's right. I mean, this assumption of carbon neutrality, of course, as I said before, it's based on the assumption that, you know, trees grow back, right? But um, what wasn't taken into consideration there was that, um, it takes a long time to grow back a tree <laughs> that you've burned. And so the, because these plants are so inefficient and wood actually contains more carbon per useful um, unit of energy than coal or gas, um, when, you, when, you burn these, when you burn wood, you produce a lot of carbon per unit energy produced. And then, of course, you're faced with this prospect of having to grow back the forest to tie up all that carbon again. And so you're, you're really looking at something that, you know, if it's treated as carbon neutral under any kind of regulatory or legislative process, that's as if saying, that's like saying it has no carbon emissions right now. But in fact, it takes decades, if not hundreds of years, to grow back the forest to tie up the carbon that was released by biomass burning. And we don't have decades or hundreds of years to no. reduce our carbon emissions. We want to do that immediately. Gosh. Uh, so, it's it's how have how have we how have are, are people waking up to the fact that it's not as good as they think it is? People are definitely waking up to the fact. <laughs> um, the state of Massachusetts listened to um, what I and a lot of other people were saying about uh, how this was just not a good direction for the state to be going into, 
and they commissioned uh, the Manomet study um, from the prestigious uh, Manomet Center for Conservation Sciences, um, where they actually modeled the emissions from biomass and looked at forest regrowth rates and came to the conclusion that burning biomass actually emits more carbon than coal, even after 40 years of forest regrowth. So in response to that finding, the state of Massachusetts just last week put out um, a new set of draft regulations that will uh, basically only allow extremely efficient, very small, combined heat and power or just thermal-only plants um, that can show that they actually reduce greenhouse gas emissions lower than natural gas. Um, because that's the most likely fuel that would be used instead in most cases. Um, those are the only facilities that are going to qualify for incentives under state rules. So that's a real step forward. What are those facilities, again, that will qualify? Combined heat and power facilities. So that's a facility that generates power but also takes that waste heat that we were talking about and um, uses it in some useful way. So pipes the steam, you know, to use for heating, for instance. Yes. Yeah, we see that in Cambridge with companies built next to the utility, the heat, the electric utility, so they can take the heat off and uh, use it for their own buildings. Right, and it makes sense. I mean, why would we want to incentivize anything that wasn't as efficient as possible? Um, we know and, so much about climate change now, and we know, you know, how to change behavior, and you offer financial incentives for those things that get you where you want to go. So does this state turn around, uh, bring relief to the people of Springfield, the people of Russell, Massachusetts? Well, the or- plants are claiming that they're still going to go forward. Um, because of some arcane uh, rules about state incentives, the Springfield plant, which would burn construction and demolition debris, um, is not as impacted by this new finding. They weren't really eligible for renewable credits anyway from the state, so being exempted from that under these new regs will not put such a roadblock in front of that plant. However, we do, the state did commission also in response to objections that we raised, um, a health study to examine the effects of burning construction and demolition debris. The Russell plan in the... Mary, I got to interrupt here. We have to break for, and we'll be right back. Sure. listening to the Green Talk Network for the latest in the sustainability and green movement for all of our futures, today and tomorrow. The Green Talk Network. Spread the green. All together Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and 
ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. Sustainable design is a term that has become commonplace as we strive to improve our quality of life and at the same time do our best to be good to our environment. Where can we turn for answers? Tune in each week for Savvy Structures and Sustainable Living with Dr. Lisa Whiplinger. Our program is a practical guide to living better and living in harmony with our surroundings. Topics range from architecture to water resources and community building. Savvy Structures and Sustainable Living, broadcasting live every Tuesday at 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific on the Green Talk Network. It's football, pop culture, and everything in between. Get ready for the game plan with Anthony Heron, a.k.a. Big Ant. Anthony has a background in college and professional football and brings the player, coach, and broadcaster perspective to this weekly roundup of the top sports news and events. Big Ant wants to hear from you, too. Tune in to the game plan with Anthony Heron every Tuesday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific time on the voice america sports channel it's game time thank you for listening to the green talk network help to spread the green by involving your family and friends you're doing your part now help them think green spread the green the green talk network You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're talking with Ph.D. ecologist Mary S. Booth. We're talking about the state of biomass power production in the U.S. and how there's been a sea change in uh, how we, we look at that. Uh, and we've been talking about Massachusetts, so let's broaden it out to uh, more of a national scene. And what's the whole kind of tree harvesting for the nation with this emphasis on biomass generating? Well, Rob, interestingly, um, although the Biomass Power Association and um, other biomass proponents claim often that all they'll ever use, they'd never cut a single tree for energy. You know, they, they say that they'll use logging residues, the tops and branches that are uh, generated during commercial timber harvesting. They'll just use that stuff as fuel. In fact, that's not at all what we're seeing on the ground. Um, we purchased an industry database which talks about the number of plants that are in the permitting pipeline right now, um, which will use wood. And the amount of wood that is needed is so far in excess of any amount of residues that could be collected. It's, you know, it's ridiculous. So, and these plants are actually saying, I mean, there are many current existing plants um, that say we use whole tree chips. So they 
cut down a tree and they throw the whole tree into a chipper, and then they use that for fuel. Um, Duke Energy, which um, wants to co-fire biomass in coal plants down in North Carolina, um, because that's the way that they can show emissions reductions from a coal plant, right? If they burn something that is claimed to have no carbon emissions, then it's like they're reducing carbon emissions. Right. So Duke Energy is arguing in front of the North Carolina Utilities Commission right now that they will never have enough fuel if they only use residues, and that the North Carolina Utilities Commission needs to designate whole trees as a renewable fuel. So the plans of the industry are are perfectly clear. It's happening already. And, you know, we we know that um, the carbon accounting, you know, tells us that you have this really long period to wait before you even achieve parity with fossil fuel emissions from biomass, let alone show an advantage in terms of reduced emissions. So the story is very grim um, in terms of impacts to forests and also um, the prospects for actually reducing power emissions, uh, power sector emissions. You were telling me you were in Washington, D.C., and your national research is having a real impact because we all tend to think locally. So you were saying you were able to educate you know, a senator from this state about what's happening over there is being... Yeah, we're, we're definitely trying to um, get the message out um, on Capitol Hill and elsewhere that we need to put the brakes on um, this industry and not incentivize it um, under energy legislation that continues to consider biomass power as carbon neutral. We need to take a good hard look at what's proposed, what the impacts will be to forests, because they'll be dramatic. Um, yeah. And, you know, the impacts to carbon emissions. Why would we want to have a renewable energy policy that actually makes carbon emissions worse? I mean, people are paying for that, you know. Um, we're all trying so hard to pass energy legislation, but we want effective energy legislation. Absolutely. So what does this mean in terms of the uh, carbon uh, emissions? Well, at a national level, the um, yeah. report that I did with Environmental Working Group uh, looked at the projected decline in power sector emissions that would supposedly happen um, if the climate bill were passed. And this is the version of the bill that was passed in the House of Representatives last year, the Waxman-Markey bill. Um, there's modeling done by the Energy, Administration, uh, Energy Information Administration that shows a decline in power sector emissions over a number of years. Um, but when you really analyze that, it turns out that about 80% of that projected decline is from them projecting that coal, coal power will come offline and that biomass mm. power will be put in its stead. So we're switching from coal to trees and then just calling that net zero carbon emissions. So that's um, a lot of the so-called you know, re- reduction in emissions that's supposed to happen is based on basically what is an accounting error a misrepresentation, in fact. Yeah, you're just switching coal, which is 33% efficient, for wood, which is only 24% efficient. Right. It's, it's, a, it's a policy that only a bureaucrat or someone standing to make a lot of money from this industry could love um, because the math just is so transparently doesn't support, um, you know, the idea that this reduces emissions. Well, Mary, we're, we're running out of time, um, and I want to thank you for, uh, for being with us. Uh, again, uh, the, I guess there were four big reasons for, uh, 
for thinking twice about biomass. That's right. Um, well, forest cutting impacts. Are forest the first, cutting, yeah. Forest, um, and then the tre- tremendous carbon emissions associated with cutting down trees and burning them for fuel, which blows a hole in our hopes of reducing carbon emissions. And then the criteria pollutants, um, the air, very typical air pollution, which is about as bad as coal when you burn wood. And then the water impacts as well. These plants are tremendously wasteful when you have to cool them. And why would we want to be, you know, drawing down our rivers and lakes to cool um, burning our forests? It just is <laughs> absolutely crazy. Jeez. <laughs> oh, so what's on your horizon going forward? Uh, and what can people do? What can we do? forward with this um, issue and, and yeah. refuting uh, all the misrepresentations that surround this issue and trying to get the data out there and get as much support as we can for, for environmental working groups' uh, work, especially on this issue. They've been instrumental in kind of um, bringing this to the next level. So, again, what are your websites where people can learn more about your work and how they can make a difference? And, uh, well, Environmental Working Group is um, ewg.org. Um, that's where the national level report is. And then the massenvironmentalenergy.org website has a lot of information and letters that we wrote about the Massachusetts uh, situation. So anyone who's trying to fight one of these plants in their own community can go to that website and get a lot of information about how we did it here. Absolutely. As well as at oceanriver.org, the site about the Westfield River and also Springfield Palmer. Uh, But, Mary, this is is really important work. It's, It's just amazing how we think that you know, wow, we got things figured out. We're going to have a greener tomorrow. And then it's like you read the fine print and realize there's a lot of soot coming out of this stuff. <laughs> you got it. <laughs> uh, when, when we come back, uh, Mike Dunmire is going to join us to update us with what's been happening in Washington, uh, including um, the uh, recent uh, decision, recent, recent thing done by the Secretary of Interior to... Uh, put a moratorium on stop on the uh, deep water drilling. Mary, thank you so much for uh, taking this time to talk about um, the, the whole biomass situation and for really ferreting out the science and getting the facts all lined up so that it becomes clear that what we had hoped would be an easy solution turns out to be something entirely different. Yeah, thanks, Rob. Thanks for the opportunity. And uh, so are you... Uh, you live right in western Massachusetts, so do you get out to see the forest and the rivers much? I live in the middle of the forest and the rivers. I'm a <laughs> proud NIMBY. <laughs> no one's cutting in your backyard, right? <laughs> yeah, I, I want to reclaim the reclaim NIMBY as a, a term we can be proud of. I mean, if you don't care about your own backyard, what do you care about? There you go. And uh, you're a forest ecologist. Is this what you expected to be doing when you went into forest ecology? Um, not exactly, but um, I am really pleased to have the opportunity to use my science in service of um, good public policy. So if people want to stop biomass producers, um, you'd recommend um, pursuing studies in ecology? <laughs> ecology is a good foundation for anything. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I found that to be true. It's a wonderful metaphor, and you get to read Rachel Carson and all these other great people and stuff. <laughs> we just went through the material so quickly that I'm lost at a loss of words here. <laughs> uh, 
Well, I, I have lots more material I can give you. Yeah, like what? Oh, just lots more information about, you know, the, the money that's behind this industry and the tax incentives and, you know, how, how it's, there's billions of dollars at stake here, and that's why the industry is fighting so hard to, you know, protect their turf. Absolutely. This is a real energy source that there's a whole industry around. And so this, this, this is a national, this, this is not, was well, it the state level as well as national, or is it? Well, the, the, at the national level, the, um, you know, the production tax credit that's associated with the production of renewable energy, of course, is Great. granted to these plants, just like a wind or a solar facility. So, you know, they get billions um, in tax breaks for generating this power. And then, of course, additional billions for selling renewable energy credits. And uh, they save money by not having to purchase um, carbon emission allowances um, under, uh, you know, the cap and trade, regional cap-and-trade systems like the Regional Greenhouse Gas Initiative here in the Northeast. Right. So. Yeah, most people don't know that we have a regional cap-and-trade program already in process here in New England and maybe New York State, and that uh, it's raised millions of dollars to uh, help industries be more, be more green. Yeah, well, Mary, we, we really no are matter out of how time you now. feel about cap-and-trade, so um, you at least want it to be based on real accounting that counts all the carbon. <laughs> yes, let's be based on real <laughs> Yes. Instead of treating a whole class of energy generation as if it produces no carbon at all, which is currently the case. Thank you, Mary, for being on the show. Yeah, thank you. Network is here. Spread the green. All together now, all together now. Connecting local stewardship with global support, the Ocean River Institute is a nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work. We believe that many environmental issues can best be addressed by people taking action in their own communities and regions. It's not the large national entities, but the small, localized, or newly formed groups that often need help to achieve their goals. That's where the Ocean River Institute comes in. We maintain a network of eco-stewards and ORI partners, connecting them with resources and services to help them maximize their impact, expand their capacity, and weather unexpected setbacks. ORI actions and events offer opportunities to make a difference, to go the distance, and you can volunteer to be an ORI eco-steward. To discover more, visit us online at www.oceanriver.org. That's www.oceanriver.org. The Ocean River Institute is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to helping people and groups make a difference where they live and work through environmental stewardship and science. When planning for the future, we need to look at all the facets, environmental, humanitarian, and social. There are so many challenges that we face in keeping everything straight and environmentally sound. That's where the deliberacy, taking deliberate actions to benefit all, comes in. Join your host, author Christopher Eldridge, every weekend for a look at the missing cornerstone that is lacking in the solutions to the challenges we face every day. Listen Saturdays at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Green Talk Network. 
If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you are listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. The Green Talk Network is here. Spread the green. You're listening to Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. To participate in today's discussion, you're welcome to call into the program at 1-888-346-9141. Again, that's 1-888-346-9141. You can also send an email to rob at oceanriver.org. Now, back to Dr. Rob Moyer. Hi, we're back with Mike Dunmeyer from Ocean Champions. Uh, Mike, how are you? Doing great, Rob. Thanks so much. Well, I'm glad to hear from you on Capitol Hill. It's been a while. And I, I see that uh, people have been kind of busy about this uh, fiasco down in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, I was very impressed by the Secretary of Interior's recent maneuvering. Can you tell us a bit about what he's done for drilling? Well, um, you saw that, uh, that the courts overturned the president's uh, temporary moratorium on deep water drilling. Um, New Orleans court, uh, yeah. And in response to that, uh, Secretary Salazar has gone and uh, by statute, by his, by his uh, rights under statute, has essentially reimposed that temporary moratorium on deep water drilling. It lasts through November, I believe. Um, so just trying to kind of buy back what they had initially, the, the logic is uh, that we need a pause in order to figure out just what went wrong, what the drivers were of the cause of the, the gushing in the Gulf, uh, and figure out a way that uh, we can prevent those in the future. I mean, whether or not you buy those as legitimate arguments for the long term is, is kind of beside the, the point right now. It's just saying we need a timeout to figure it out. Um, but the debate on that issue is is not over yet. Uh, a number of the the Gulf state representatives, um, none of our champions, important to say, uh, <laughs> are are continuing to uh, to beat on uh, the administration because they're saying, look, this is going to cost jobs, and uh, you know there, there's probably some truth to that. But the reality is that uh, you know there, there's in the greater scheme of the country, it's a marginal number of jobs against yet another massive environmental disaster that itself kills many, many, many more jobs than this short-term moratorium would. So, uh, kind of interesting. And uh, uh, what I just saw, I mean, I, I, I just got these uh, news items coming across my desk. Uh, you may recall, Rob, that the, the president has uh, appointed a commission to investigate this bill, and uh, he yes. has named... Uh, two co-chairs of the commission. Well, they, they've begun having hearings in the commission to understand what's going on, and the two co-chairs uh, just came out against uh, the president's, well, the interior secretary, the administration's right, uh, moratorium. short-term moratorium, which is uh, phenomenal. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my goodness. Appointed. I mean, I love the analogy of this is like, when the house is on fire, you start to build the fire engine. You know, so you'd think that when they don't have their act together for how to handle these things, they shouldn't be able, permitted to just go ahead and do it again. And these 
politicians and these chairs of the presidential committee are saying, oh, no, no, we, we can just, you know, jury-rig things as we go along. We have no obligation to promise to have the cleanup crews lined up ahead of time or whatever. That's amazing. Yeah, you know, the, it, and, you know, the, 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 those who are kind of continuing to press for drilling will kind of use whichever argument uh, kind of works in their favor at the moment. And, they, again, the, these two uh, uh, commission chairs have said they were moved by the testimony of certain folks like uh, uh, Mary Landry, the senator from Louisiana, who, again, is saying this is really killing uh, jobs for her constituents. But, again, let's just step back and look at the math and ask in terms of fishing jobs, in terms of tourism jobs, in terms of losses to states, you know, what's going to hurt more, uh, uh, a couple uh, delays on rigs starting up or uh, what the oil is doing to the Gulf economies right now. And there are some jobs in showing, in the industry, showing the, the, the government that they, are, they have the capacity to make repairs. I mean, it's not just shut down send everybody home. It's like you guys have got to figure out, you know, what are legitimate plans for, for contingencies and so forth. Yep, in, indeed. And, and then uh, right now as we speak, uh, there is a, a markup going on uh, with some very intriguing debate in the, the full committee in, uh, on natural resources in the House. And this is a debate over uh, uh, Congressman Rahal, the chairman of that committee and, and an ocean champion, um, has put forth uh, a, a bill called the Clear Act. That it, it is an energy bill, um, but it, and, and it, it seeks to uh, address some of the reform issues uh, that that you know were, were existing in place with MMS and with the uh, Outer Continental Shelf Lands Act, which governs uh, what things need to be done to approve uh, uh, drilling uh, offshore. Uh, it addresses a lot of the flaws there. It addresses some of the bad things they're in with how royalties uh, work right now. But then it goes and does some very good things for oceans as well. It, uh, it establishes an ocean investment fund off of uh, oil leasing cash flows that exist today and go to the general treasury. It would take some of those and apply them to an annual fund for ocean conservation work, which is a great thing. Um, it does That's not a great thing. Yeah, it does not say that we are in favor of drilling because it takes revenues from drilling that's going on today and that's going to continue to go on. It would take revenues from new drilling if that happened, and, of course, we would continue to try to, to defeat new drilling. But in that case, it works kind of like an insurance policy. If you lose that fight, then, uh, then you're still going to get something for it. And it would wind up being about a billion dollars a year, which you know, could do some real good for the ocean. Uh, so we're hoping that that gets through. And then there's another piece that begins to set up a framework for coastal and marine spatial planning, which we've talked about before, uh, is essentially urban zoning for the ocean to make sure that you don't have competing uses in a, in, 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 uh, a sensitive area of the ocean where the, the, the uses could harm one another. Uh, so this really is a robust day for oceans and, and, and what's going on in the Gulf. I, I heard that the ORCA provision for the CLEAR Act is... Um, in trouble right now. Um, it's in the debate right now. So the ORCA provision is the is the Ocean Investment Trust, um, and uh, what you see going on uh, are essentially the Republicans uh, offering amendments that would gut the bill and take out everything except for a provision that that says we need to go and and, and rebuild the Gulf and let's put some money towards that, uh, and another provision which says let's let's have the reorganization of MMS to get away from the conflicts of interest established by statute. Gut everything else, which is really all the good stuff for oceans, uh, including the investment fund. 
Um, uh, that has not been called out by name uh, in, in this gutting, but it's a part of it now. That's the conversations. Kind of I'm sorry. Go ahead, Rob. That's kind of their role. The the opposition has to try to gut everything. <laughs> Indeed, and important to note that this would not be new revenues. These this is not raising the cost of uh, uh, you know anyone doing anything here. It's taking advantage of cash flows that exist and putting them right to a potential you know, problem that this activity causes. Um, we do know from the inside that that particular fund really is a priority uh, of, uh, of the leadership of the, of the committee and of many of the, the, uh, the, the staffers that, that work there. So I think that as uh, the Republicans will, you know, will come at this, tilt at this with, with arrows and slings, I think that uh, people are willing to fall on their swords to defend it, and we're certainly hopeful that, uh, that it's going to prevail. Yeah, I don't think I think it's just they're standing by under shields. I don't think uh, Congressman Rahal's worried about seeing the point of a sword or anything. <laughs> Indeed, <laughs> um, but it, it makes for great theater. <laughs> really, but, uh, an it makes interesting for great theater. Uh, yeah, he, he's a, a, a one-design sailboat racer, and when he was in college, so he's good at tacking back and forth with an onslaught of oncoming wind and stuff. <laughs> Yeah, in, indeed. Um, so, um, you know, if people we'll, want to know more about this, they should go to oceanchampions.org. Uh, in, indeed. So we are. Uh, you can check us out there. Also on Facebook and on Twitter, we're trying to put out a lot of information, kind of as it happens uh, on these issues, and then we'll start to form some more robust views through blogs and things like that. But absolutely, uh, Mike, check we're out, out of time. Champions. Thank you so much for the update. <laughs> Thank you, Rob. again for joining us this week on Moyer's Environmental Dialogues. Please tune in for more with Dr. Rob Moyer next Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific Time, noon Eastern Time on the Green Talk Network. We'll talk again then. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Green Talk Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit thegreentalknetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.